This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. If you go to our mortgage team's website, you'll find hundreds of testimonials of real Christian radio listeners we've helped. Laura here is a recent friend who is kind enough to share a few words with her local station. I was actually referred to United Faith Mortgage through my mother-in-law. We decided it was time for us to start looking for a house, and I reached out to Kelly. And we found several houses we liked, but, you know, with the seller's market, things kept falling through. But anytime we needed her, she was there for us. She got everything we needed as soon as we asked for it, and she made it work. She made sure that if that was the house that our family wanted, we were going to get that house. They're a wonderful company, and we're just really blessed that we found them in the process, that they helped us get through it, and we are in the home of our dreams, and and our family is so happy. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp., 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what this weekend is all about. You and I claim there is evidence, enough to stake our faith on it, but what are the sources? And can we really trust them? Raised on the third day, that's our focus. And welcome to The Land of the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East scholar, frequent Israel traveler. I'm John Geiger, along for the ride. Charlie, good to connect with you on this Easter weekend. You know, John, it's a great time to connect with you. He is risen, isn't he? Uh, And boy, what better reason for hope is there? The only reason for hope when you think about it. That's right. Well, Charlie, we've got something fun today before we get into our current events segment. It's an Easter weekend book blast. Well, John, what do we have in the pile with those books? Well, it is a pile of books. There's three of them to be exact. The Characters of Easter by Daniel Darling. This is a great Moody Publishers book, perfect for this season, looking at the villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle. And then it's uh, our subject for today, raised on the third day, defending the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, David Beck, our guest coming up later. And finally, I know this guy, Dr. Charlie Dyer, along with Greg Hatterberg. They've put together the new Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land. So these three books, Charlie, are part of our book blast. Now, I'm wondering, won't people be interested in knowing how do they get the book blast? I would think that that's what's going through their mind right now, John. (laughs) Well, thanks for setting me up, Charlie. Here's how you uh, enter to win. You're going to send us an email letting us know how the land and the book has impacted your life. What we're looking for is a story, not so much a, I really like the current events segment, but much more of a, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend who asked a question and boom, I was able to connect with something I'd heard on the land and the book or I'm a pastor, and uh, I use something I heard in a message. Or maybe it's just uh, your own personal Bible reading that suddenly has come to life for you. Tell us a story, all right, in just a couple of sentences, how the land and the book has shaped your understanding of Scripture or your walk with Jesus. And email that story to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu, and we'll pick a winner by next Wednesday. All right, Charlie, let's dig into our current events. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. You're always ready, Charlie. On Monday, Israel's president will meet with the different parties in the Knesset to see who they believe should be given the first opportunity to form a coalition. Do we have any sense of who might be selected or how successful that person might be? 
You know, John, right now things seem to be completely up in the air. After canvassing all the parties, President Rivlin will announce on Wednesday the person who will be given the first opportunity to form that coalition. Uh, he caused a stir this last Wednesday when he called for, quote, unusual collaborations to solve the political deadlock. He said the main consideration in picking a prime minister candidate would be the odds of forming a government, not the number of Knesset members backing them. Well, the largest party by far is Likud with 30 seats in the Knesset. So they took that as a swipe against Netanyahu since he would normally be expected to be given that opportunity to go first. But with the current arithmetic, it looks like his potential coalition is going to fall about two seats short. Hmm. The anti-Netanyahu parties are trying to unite and get the remaining 61 Knesset members to choose anyone but Netanyahu. Yair Lapid would like to be the possible candidate since his party had the second largest number of seats with 17, but several parties have said they wouldn't sit in a government led by him. And that highlights the problem with the anti-Netanyahu coalition. It's extremely fragmented with parties spanning the political spectrum, you know, from conservative to liberal, from the Arab list to parties that said they would never join a coalition with the Arabs, from secular to religious, from those who don't believe Israel should be a Jewish state to those who are very Zionistic in their outlook. The only thing those individual parties share in common is their dislike of Netanyahu. So here are three things to watch for. First, watch to see if Netanyahu can charm members of the opposition into joining him. He just needs two, but he also needs to start with some parties that people assume are already in his camp, but whose leaders haven't officially said they'll support him. They're essential to his coalition. If they don't join, Netanyahu will be out. Hmm. But second, watch to see if the opposition can agree on a choice for prime minister. If Lapid can't get enough support, well, then the most likely candidate would be Naftali Bennett, uh, but uh, that's quite uncertain whether he'll be able to pull that off or not. Uh, finally, watch to see which parties abandon their campaign promises. Uh, the Ra'am party is the Islamic Arab party. You know, would they join Netanyahu's coalition to give him a majority? The party leader is more pragmatic, but other Arab leaders are saying if he were to join a coalition that included the far-right religious parties, his career would be finished. Uh, will Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope Party align with Yair Lapid and the Arab Joint List? Those are two red lines Sa'ar said he would never cross. Hmm. Or will he align with Netanyahu, something he also said his party would never do? You know, can the anti-Netanyahu forces pass a law preventing someone under indictment from serving as prime minister? That seems rather unlikely, but it's something that they were talking about. And that would definitely shake up the equation and allow conservative factions to unite under a different leader. The one thing you can be sure of, John, is there are backroom discussions taking place right now. But as of the time we're recording this, no clear pathway forward has yet emerged. The only thing everyone agrees on is that they really don't want a fifth election. Well, as the U.S. pulls back from its involvement in the Middle East, other countries are stepping in to fill the vacuum. Help us understand the role China is now trying to play in this uh, ongoing drama. Yeah, China's becoming more actively involved in the Middle East and has the potential of really shaking up the region. China and Iran just signed a 25-year cooperation accord, bringing the two countries into a strategic partnership. China is already Iran's main trading partner and one of the largest buyers of Iranian oil. Uh, they're now going to invest $400 billion in Iran in exchange for oil. Uh, the full details of the arrangement aren't being made public, but a draft last year suggested that the two countries are also going to exchange intelligence information. 
presumably on the U.S., Israel, and the other Gulf states. The agreement also includes a commitment to military cooperation, joint training, and research, and that could bolster Iran's military. China's political support for Iran means the U.N. Security Council will not be able to impose additional sanctions on them should Iran move forward with developing nuclear weapons. Uh, The agreement also undermines potential U.S. leverage on Iran in future negotiations and could cut into our influence in the Middle East. China senses a hesitancy in U.S. willingness to project our power and influence in the region. They see Russia trying to expand its influence in the Middle East, and they see Iran as being their key to expanding into that region. Just joining us, this is The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. It's current events, stories you're seeing online and on television based in the Middle East. Well, Charlie, today was a good day for a parade in Cairo. A procession of 22 royal mummies were transported from the Egyptian museum to their new home five miles away. Got to ask, Charlie, why exactly were these mummies transferred to a new home? Yeah, the Egyptian Museum is a venerable structure. It's right in the heart of Cairo on Tahrir Square, but the building was outdated and overcrowded. And that's why the multi-year project to build a modern and enlarged National Museum of Egyptian Civilization has been long overdue. Uh, John, I remember my first visit to the original museum. I was amazed to see people leaning on a simple glass case over the golden mask of King Tut. And I looked in vain for some artifacts that I knew were in the museum, but that weren't able to be displayed because of a lack of space. But finally, the new building is ready, and Egypt decided to celebrate by transporting these 22 royal mummies in a festive parade. Of the mummies that were transported, 18 were kings and four were queens. Among those included in the parade were Ramses II, Thutmose III, and Queen Hatshepsut, who might have been the Pharaoh's daughter who raised Moses. Now, in addition, the parade included 17 royal sarcophagi. Uh, The items were transported on the Nile River and then accompanied the final way by chariots and horses. The new museum will officially open to the public later this year, but the arrival of the mummies was a reminder of how amazing this new facility will be once it's fully open. Well, as the COVID vaccine rolls out here in the United States, there are still many parts of the world where virtually no one has yet been vaccinated. But if an Israeli-American pharmaceutical company has its way, this will soon change with the introduction of an oral vaccine. What are the details on this latest innovation from Amazing Israel? This innovation is based on technology developed by Hadassah University Medical Center. A company named Oramed Pharmaceuticals has entered into a joint venture to begin to develop a novel vaccine to protect against the coronavirus. They formed a new company called Oravax Medical. The technology was originally developed to administer other protein-based therapies that are otherwise delivered by injection. Uh, They're actually in the middle of a phase three trial through the FDA to administer oral insulin capsules for the treatment of diabetes. And now they've turned their attention to developing a similar product that could deliver the COVID vaccine orally. Uh, The vaccine's yeast-based, which makes it less expensive to produce. It can be shipped at refrigerator temperature, stored at room temperature, and it makes the vaccine easier to just simply transport and store. Oral vaccines are also safer, and they have fewer side effects. Now, finally, an oral vaccine doesn't even require a medical professional to administer it. It's as simple as swallowing a pill. 
Uh, they hope to begin phase one human trials uh, within three months. Now, with so much of the world still under the grip of this virus, the mass production of a vaccine in pill form could help the world recover from this pandemic far more quickly. Uh, someday, hopefully soon, the solution to the pandemic, John, could be as simple as swallowing a pill. And when that day comes, we'll all thank the doctors and scientists and amazing Israel who helped bring that to pass. And that's a look at current events. Well, Charlie, we're in the middle of our Easter weekend book blast. It's a collection of three books that uh, you're able to go in and be a part of a drawing to win. How do you qualify? Well, it's easy. Send an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. In that email, tell us a specific story of how God has used the land and the book in your life to either encourage you, maybe uh, solve uh, an issue that was uh, maybe unresolved for you about the Bible or prophecy. Again, email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu for your chance to win the characters of Easter, Raised on the Third Day, and the Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land. David Beck is next, Raised on the Third Day, here on The Land and the Book. Jesus rise from the dead? Is resurrection even possible? What does the evidence really say? And what about the evidence outside the Bible? Does any exist? Those are great questions to ask on this Easter weekend. Dr. David Beck is professor of philosophy at Liberty University. His focus in research and teaching has been in the philosophy of religion, specifically the existence of God and the cosmological argument. He's one of the editors of the Lexham Press book, Raised on the Third Day. In it, they approach some tough questions with critical and believing eyes. A variety of contributors, including J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, Craig Evans, Beth Shepard, and Sean McDowell, evaluate scriptural, history, moral, and apologetic issues related to Christ's death and resurrection. So welcome to the land of the book, Dr. Beck. Thank you. Let's just ask, why is the resurrection such a critical issue for Christ followers. I mean, some would argue that even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, well, we still have the accounts of his miracles, we still have his teachings, we still have his selfless example, but those are not enough. Remind us why. I think it's important to realize that, that in many ways this is the most critical question we have. You're right, we could be content to live the way Jesus lived, we could live uh, in sort of selfless ways, we're often told, um, might be helpful, but it wouldn't tell us anything about the truth. Hmm. Uh, we live in a day when people seem to have lost the whole notion of what really is the truth about God and us and how we might relate to God. And now the resurrection becomes a really critical question. And it also focuses us the other way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything else is true. Yeah. There are a lot of other questions that we debate uh, about creation, about evil and how it fits our lives, especially these days with the pandemic, and all sorts of questions like that. Uh, some of which I have really good answers to, some of which I don't have really good answers to. But it's not really important. In the end, the only important question is, did Jesus actually, as a matter of history, rise from the dead? If that's true, 
then Christianity is true. Yeah. So it, it really is the, the most critical question that we have. So what are the known historical facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, this is what's interesting. Uh, the book, of course, is dedicated to Gary Habermas, and this has kind of been his specialty. Uh, what Habermas has done is kind of knocked this down to uh, sometimes he uses four, maybe five or six uh, critical facts that everyone agrees on, even atheists, every historian agrees about some central facts here, simple facts that Jesus was crucified, that there are those who claim to have seen him alive, that those who were in fact his enemies, like Paul, have changed their mind, that all sorts of things have changed in history. There's a, a short list here of facts that you can't accommodate unless, in fact, it's true Mm. that Jesus rose from the dead. We're talking today with Dr. David Beck, professor of philosophy at Liberty University, looking at Raised on the Third Day, a great book about evidence for the resurrection. You know, the testimony of the Jewish historian Josephus, what does he say, and why is it critical to this discussion? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's one of the most important... Uh, backup sources. Um, There are several uh, like that. Um, Josephus makes it quite clear that there was a person, Jesus, that he was crucified. Um, He even tells us that the crucifixion was uh, by Pontius Pilate. And perhaps the most important thing that he tells us in this quote is that the disciples, his followers, didn't give up on the message, but in fact that they reported that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, what's interesting about it is that Josephus doesn't seem to have believed the claim. He doesn't become a Christian. But that, of course, is is in a way, I mean, I wish he had become a Christian, but, but in a way that's really good because it gives us an enemy witness here, someone who is not a Christian at all, to the clear facts. And and we often get these ideas that, well, the only place they talk about Jesus' resurrection are the gospel writers, and of course they talk about it because they were Christians. Well, (laughs) fact is, they didn't become Christians until, and we do, in fact, have other witnesses Or let's go there. Is there any other kind of historical or evidential trail on the resurrection issue outside of the Bible and Josephus? Yeah, there are. I mean, there are plenty of other witnesses to the account. Um, Maybe the other second most important uh, would be Tacitus, the Roman historian, um, in his uh, piece about Nero. uh, He mentions again the crucifixion and the story. And then what he adds is that these followers of Jesus were right there in Rome Hmm. in Nero's day, which is an interesting confirmation, not only of the resurrection itself, but also uh, of the early arrival of the church in Rome. Uh, It's interesting that all of Paul's letters were written to churches that he had established, except one. 
a church that has already been in existence for some time when Paul writes to them, uh, namely the church in Rome. So that's an important one. Um, and there are a bunch of others that give us various insights that are quite apart from Scripture. And Tacitus, of course, is not a Christian either. So, The lack of a dead body. You know, all the Romans had to do was produce the corpse, and boom, the rumors of the risen Jesus are gone. But they didn't. Why isn't that uh, more of a big deal for skeptics today? Well, yeah, that too um, is one of those facts that historians all have to admit that has to be accounted for. Clearly, there, there is an empty tomb here that is one of the important facts, and, and you're right. I mean, this, this would have been really easy to squelch. Yes. Uh, certainly, the Jewish authorities knew where he was buried and could perfectly well have produced the body. So sometimes the argument is, well, the disciples managed to hide it or something like that. Uh, but again, the disciples couldn't have hidden it without the Romans knowing, and they would easily have been tracked down. So uh, the whole idea that somehow the body was stolen or it's missing or whatever, it just, just, just doesn't make sense. Women as witnesses at the empty tomb. Now, modern readers might well overlook why this is such a powerful piece of evidence in favor of the reality of the resurrection. Walk us through this argument, Dr. Beck. Um, yeah, this is, this is, I think, really important, but you're right. Uh, we today certainly don't see what's going on here. Uh, but in the ancient world, certainly in Rome, uh, and certainly in Israel, uh, the testimony before a formal court of women was not held to be reliable. Uh, again, you've got to kind of see your way back into the ancient world at this point. Mm -hmm. So no one would have called on or listened to women as witnesses for this event. Which means this, the only alternative to this being true and reliable history is that this story was somehow invented. Well, the point is, if you were going to invent a story mm -hmm. about some guy who died and then was alive again, you most certainly wouldn't use as your frontline witnesses a bunch of women. You simply wouldn't have done that. So the fact that the Gospels make it clear that the first witnesses to the resurrection are women is a way of saying that this is not an invented story, because this is not how you would invent it. So again, it, it's kind of difficult for us to understand, because we don't have obviously that same sort of attitude towards witnesses, but nevertheless, yeah. it's a good argument. Let's talk about the argument of the deaths of the apostles and their unwavering commitment, their unwavering belief in the resurrection. What does that tell us? Well, again, um, if this story was invented, uh, would they have died for it? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, if, in fact, they stole the body, if they somehow made it disappear, would they have been willing to die for that? Again, it just doesn't make sense. So 
you know, there are a lot of interesting little sub-arguments here. They they sort of all amount to the point, well, if you were going to invent this story, this yeah. is not the story you would invent. Right. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other event in human history is more important. That's why we're joined today by Dr. David Beck, editor of Rays on the Third Day. I think of Paul's enormous focus on the resurrection. Here's a, a no-nonsense guy, Right who loved yep. logic, loved the facts, clearly believed in the resurrection. I think that's a powerful statement there. Your thoughts? Yeah, and here's an ardent Jew who's also very well-trained in Greek philosophy. Uh, why would he commit himself to this? Again, it, it doesn't make sense, given what we know about Paul. It simply doesn't make sense that Paul would have given his life, and in fact, quite literally gave his life, just for this historical account. And 1 Corinthians 15 is really important here. It's clear that for Paul, this rests on the facts. It rests on the eyewitness account. So Paul is not accepting this as some sort of religious belief. He's accepting this as an account of the facts. Again, another piece of evidence that atheists simply can't make sense of unless Jesus actually rose from the dead. So what should aspiring and seasoned apologists and the rest of us take away from this discussion about the reality of the resurrection? I think maybe the most important thing is that we've got to bring this whole discussion, let's call it the discussion about religion, (laughs) the discussion about God and how we relate to God, we've got to bring it back to the facts. Our culture has been so conditioned to think of religion as simply things that you believe to make you happy. Hmm. Uh, Remember the song, what'll get you through the night. But that's not the point at all. And Christians themselves seem to have succumbed to this, that we've come to think about Christianity as what will make us feel good, what will give us somehow some sort of good blessing on Sunday morning that will take us through the week, that will help us face the COVID, and and all the rest of it. And that's good. Yeah, we need to feel good. But that's not the issue. The issue is, what's the truth? Is there, in fact, a God? Does God love us, wish to relate to us, And the answer to that comes in the form of a simple event that in Jesus, God confirms his love for us, and he proves it by raising him from the dead. So if that fact isn't true, and I'm not the first one to say it, it was Paul who said it. If that fact isn't true, the rest of this is all garbage. Paul didn't say it quite like that, but that's what he said. (laughs) Well, he said it in in so many words, and uh, you put a fine point on it. We appreciate this conversation so much. Our time is gone. Dr. David Beck is the editor of Raised on the Third Day. A link to the book and to him as well at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, don't go away. Charlie Dyer's back with a look at your questions next on The Land and the Book. So if you're new to The Land and the Book, this is segment three, a 
Our program has four segments. And Charlie, what are we going to do in segment three? We're going to answer people's questions. If they have questions about the Bible or about something else in the Middle East and write to us, I'll answer them online. And then we share the questions here and share the answers with our larger audience. All right. Let's get started with Gary's question. He says, can you shed some light on the subject of fasting? There doesn't seem to be much about that taught in our church anymore. Yeah, there isn't much discussion of fasting in churches, and which is probably more a reflection on how much Western culture has impacted our Christianity. Now, there is a good article. If somebody wants to Google Table Talk Fasting Guy Richard, uh, they'll find it. It was an article that Guy Richard wrote in Table Talk back in November 2018. Uh, it's really a good article, and it focuses on six reasons uh, that he provides on why fasting ought to be something we do today. Now, one danger he stresses, and I agree with him completely, it's to make fasting performance-based, you know, to mm. somehow try to force God's hand to do what we want. So we're going to not eat, and that'll make God act. Uh, that's not why we fast, nor is fasting to be done to impress others with our godliness or our self-sacrifice. In fact, uh, there might be many around uh, who are fasting, but who just don't make a show of it. And that's where Jesus's words in Matthew 6 uh, are a good reminder when it comes to how we ought to fast. Hal writes, I have always assumed that the bottomless pit and hell, the current place unbelievers are now in, are the same place. A lesson I'm studying says it is not so, but gives no scripture to say why. So if it's not the same place, can you give me a scripture to look up? Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure if we have enough information in the Bible to be able to clearly say how the two places are related, but here's what I would say. Uh, the bottomless pit is the translation of the Greek word abusas. Uh, most modern versions translate it as abyss. Uh, the key is to see how the Bible uses that term. And so if you go through in Luke chapter 8, the gathering demons didn't want to be sent into the abyss. So Jesus sent them into a herd of swine. Uh, in Romans 10 uh, verse 7, Paul uses the word as a synonym to refer to the place of the departed dead. In Revelation 9, it's a place where demons are kept imprisoned uh, and then freed to torment humanity. And in Revelation 11 and 17, the Antichrist is said to come up from the abyss, probably a reference to when he died and then when he comes back to life or appears to come back to life as Satan uh, brings about a resuscitation. And then finally, in Revelation 20, Satan's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. Now, if I put all that together, it looks like the abyss is primarily a temporary place of confinement and torment for fallen angels. Now, I'm not sure if we have enough information to know how it relates to the place where unbelievers are now confined. Uh, perhaps the, the two are like separate locations in the same prison, if you will. Uh, but we do know that the fallen angels and the unsaved do finally end up in the same place, but mm -hmm. it's not the abyss. It's the lake of fire. You've joined us for The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at questions. I love these. In Matthew 27, this listener says, Joseph placed Jesus' body in his own new tomb. In all accounts, Joseph is either rich or a man of prominence in the council. So why would he have a new tomb adjacent to a place where Romans crucified people outside the town? I thought it was strange that someone of Joseph's stature would have a burial plot on a place called the Skull. What light can you shed on this issue? Yeah, it does seem jarring to us, but evidently it wasn't to those in that day. Uh, graves and tombs were considered unclean places, so perhaps they didn't see that as a problem. And the tomb was nearby, but it wasn't on Golgotha. Uh, we know the area had been a quarry that evidently had been abandoned as the city grew. So Joseph selected a spot where the stone had been quarried away and it provided a cliff face where his workers could carve out the tomb. 
Uh, we know the area was also an agricultural garden, a working garden, if you will. And the Romans just happened to choose that area because it was near the gate and the roadway. So it became their place of execution. But evidently the rest of the area, apart from where they were carrying on those executions, remained undisturbed by the Romans. You know, as you think about this story of Jesus and his death, we're talking about the tomb. And this question Charlie has just brought up, it brings to mind the larger issue of why Jesus died. If you have never made personal what Jesus did in dying on the cross to pay for the sinning that you've done, that I've done, that we've all done, what better weekend than Easter weekend to get this all reconciled? We can't do the reconciling. Jesus has done it for us. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, believe what? The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. And if you'd like to have a conversation now with a volunteer who can help you know Jesus finally and forever, call 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. Let's get back to our questions, Charlie. The scriptures, says this listener, don't say what happens to the demons when Jesus cast them into the herd of swine. But it seems the way they act, that when they come out of this demon-possessed man, suggests they didn't want to go to the abyss or bottomless pit. But after the swine ran into the water and drowned, what then happened to those demons? Yeah, I suspect those demons were afraid. Jesus was about to command them to be imprisoned in that abyss, and that's why they begged for an alternative. Now, on entering the swine, their goal was to drive the swine to destruction which I think is a good picture of what a demon's ultimate purpose is when they inhabit humans as well. Uh, The demons are there to torment and ultimately destroy their host. Uh, They are the demonic equivalent of the COVID-19 virus. Once they drove the swine into the Sea of Galilee, they would have been free. They left the swine and then they went in search of other victims. And in fact, Jesus gave that principle in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, He talked about demons being cast out of a person, traveling in waterless places, that is outside a body, and then seeking another body to re-inhabit. So uh, that's what happened to them. They went to re-inhabit some other individual. Tom writes, I'm confused about the battle of Gog and Magog and the battle of Armageddon. Are they the same thing or are they different battles? Yeah, the battle of Gog and Magog is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and it occurs when Israel's living in the land in peace and safety. Uh, In fact, it talks about them being all there living in safety, uh, peaceful and unsuspecting people, uh, living without walls, without gates and bars. So that's true of Israel in the first half of that future seven-year tribulation period. But it won't be true for the second half. And that distinction is important because the gathering of Armageddon takes place at the end of the seven-year period. It's described in Revelation chapter 16. It's part of the sixth bowl of judgment poured out on the earth, which is the next to the last judgment before Jesus returns to earth. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we're told that Satan and the Antichrist will be fighting against and seeking to destroy the Jewish people during the second half of the tribulation period. That's found in Revelation 12. So the difference in timing tells me that the battles take place at different times. The battle of Gog and Magog is when Israel's back in the land and seemingly at peace. The gathering at Armageddon takes place at the end of that period, just before Christ returns, and Israel's going to be experiencing great persecution from the Antichrist. So you notice, by the way, I tend to refer to the gathering of Armageddon, or sometimes I'll call it the campaign of Armageddon, rather than the battle of Armageddon, because 
Revelation 16 doesn't actually describe a battle. It just says Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet gather the nations of the world for a final battle, and they're gathering at a place called in Hebrew the Hill of Megiddo, which is what Armageddon comes from. Uh, that starts a campaign, but that campaign ends in the actual final battle at Jerusalem. Mm. And that's where Jesus returns to earth and defeats the Antichrist and his army. Vern says, I really enjoy the land and the book and the insight provided. I have a friend, he goes on, who struggles with eternal security. And I've presented a number of passages in the book of Romans and 1 John. He brought to my attention Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 9. And his interpretation is that these people were once saved because they experienced the Holy Spirit, but have lost their salvation. What do you think? Yeah, I'll start this way. It's an admittedly a difficult passage for everyone. It breaks down into a couple possibilities, so bear with me here. Uh, Your friend believes that Hebrews 6 is teaching a person can lose his or her salvation, but if that's the case, the passage goes on to say that if that person lost their salvation, they can never get it back. Hmm. It says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, most who believe a person can lose their salvation aren't willing to go that far. I have a second problem with that position as well. It's based on what Jesus said in John. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. If we can somehow lose our salvation, then what Jesus said wasn't correct since some to whom he gave his salvation could perish. So what I think is happening in Hebrews is the writers describing individuals who appeared to accept Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, but now that persecution has arisen, are beginning to waver and turn back from following Jesus. And the writer is saying to them to choose to persevere in their faith because those who don't will ultimately show that they never really had true faith to begin with. They tasted it in the sense that they'd seen the reality of what true faith in God looks like as they attended services, as they lived among believers. But having done all that, if they finally reject and turn away, they show that they were never truly following Christ and they lose that opportunity ever to come to true faith again. Now, we know individuals can sometimes appear to fall away like Peter did when he denied Christ. But the point is that as we look from the outside, we can't tell if a professing person has truly turned to Christ or not, but God can see their heart. And God promises that those who do put their trust in Christ will never lose their salvation. That's what we need to cling to. It's God's promise. But we've covered a lot of ground here on today's uh, segment and hope you found that helpful. Your questions always welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next. great season of the year this is, Easter. I'm John Geiger welcoming you back to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. You know, uh, Charlie, I love Easter. I also love the Olympics. You say, where is this guy going? Uh, You never hear the two in the same sentence, Easter and Olympics, and yet somehow I suspect you're going to connect those two. I am, John. We're going to talk about the Easter Olympics today. Okay, we'll look forward to that in your devotional, which follows this wonderful testimony from someone who's gone to Israel and shares this with us. I went to the Holy Land when I was about 25 years old. It was at a point where I was um, studying the Bible and I went to church, but up to that point I felt like I was a churchgoer, but faith wasn't part of my life. The trip to the Holy Land allowed me to see every single story from the Bible as if it were real. And not only that, 
I also gained a historical perspective because the current events suddenly made so much more sense because of their rooting in history. It was devastating to see how many centuries people have not been able to resolve their view of of the Lord. But what I kept with me for the next 30 years has been that our Christ walked those streets in Jerusalem. And uh, I felt like every single thing that I try to wonder and believe in that is in God's Word, I go back to the fact that, well, Jesus was real. And his world was real, and, and these messages from God in the Bible are real for me, too. I love those Holy Land experiences. Nothing like going to the land, experiencing the land and the book, and then coming back and, and then sharing it with others, as we just heard. Charlie, where are we headed in this idea of Easter and Olympics? Well, John, we're actually going to start where I grew up, in northeastern Pennsylvania. You know, back there, the main sports in school were football, basketball, wrestling, and baseball. Mm -hmm. I excelled in none of them. I was too small for football, too short for basketball, and too uncoordinated for wrestling and baseball. Now, our school had a track team, but I wasn't fast enough on my feet to be a track star either. I did make the varsity bowling team, but that wasn't exactly a top-tier sport. I tried jogging for a while after becoming an adult and even ran some while in Israel. I wasn't the fastest runner, but then the student group I was jogging with weren't Olympic caliber athletes either. And that was okay because we were in Israel and the road on which we were jogging took us around the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. The distance was only three miles, but it had its share of hills that made it more challenging. The uphill run from the original city of David up to the northeast corner of the old city was our very own Heartbreak Hill, a three-quarter mile stretch of uphill running that was especially difficult at least for me. Now, as we approach this Easter season, I'm reminded of Jerusalem's first Easter Olympics. As we said, you might not be familiar with that. Well, it wasn't really an official Olympics, but two Olympic-style events did take place in Jerusalem that first Easter Sunday. Let's head to the starting blocks for the first event, which is about to begin. This particular event is the seldom-run 600-yard dash and it's being run through the old city of Jerusalem itself. It starts at the upper room and ends at a stone quarry and graveyard just outside the city walls. John described the event in chapter 20 of his gospel. The race begins when Mary Magdalene rushes into the upper room where the disciples had gathered and shouts, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Mary's words are the verbal equivalent of the starter's pistol and the two-man race begins. John gives a blow-by-blow description of the race as it unfolds. Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. The other disciple, by the way, is actually John himself. He's rather modest. He never mentions himself by name, but he does let us know that he's the faster runner. In fact, he says, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It looks like John is the clear winner, but there's a dispute at the finish line. John stopped at the tomb entrance, bent over and looked in. However, Peter arrived and went into the tomb. It looks like the finish line was inside the tomb because John then adds that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. So John outran Peter, but apparently lost the race at the end due to a mix-up. Well, if there's some confusion over the 600-yard dash, the mini-marathon is much clearer. Luke records this event in Luke 24. It began with Jesus meeting two disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
While most Bible translations say the town was seven miles from Jerusalem, there's a textual issue. Depending on which Greek manuscript is used, the distance was either 60 stadia, seven miles, or 160 stadia, 18 miles. Now, I can't be too dogmatic, but I personally believe the longer distance is probably correct and fits the geography better. Jesus appeared to the two disciples, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Imagine what it must have been like to be part of that mobile Bible study with Jesus himself leading it. The two disciples said to each other afterward, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And that's when this mini marathon began. These two disciples got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Even at a fast walk, the return journey to Jerusalem would have taken about five hours. They didn't set an Olympic record, but the entire journey from Emmaus back to Jerusalem was an 18-mile uphill trek. And that's after they'd walked 18 miles to reach Emmaus, 36 miles in one day. That's about 45,000 steps for all of you wearing a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. And it's the equivalent of climbing 125 flights of stairs. Evidently, this race ended in a tie. The two found the 11 and those with them and told them what had happened. Now, as you're listening to this, you might be thinking to yourself, these disciples had to be highly trained athletes. I don't know if I could sprint 600 yards without collapsing, and I certainly couldn't walk 36 miles and climb 125 flights of stairs in a single day. How were they able to do it? Well, they were in reasonably good physical health. Remember, they were used to walking everywhere. And with Israel being so hilly, they were also used to walking up and down steep hills. But there's another reason these disciples were able to push themselves to such an extent physically. They were on an adrenaline rush because they knew Jesus was alive. After days of uncertainty, they were jolted back to reality by news that would forever change their lives. John and Peter ran toward the tomb thinking someone had stolen the body of Jesus. A mixture of concern and perhaps even some anger pushed them along. But when John looked into the tomb, the truth of what Jesus had been predicting all along came clearly into focus. And as John says about himself in John 20, verse 8, he saw, in the sense of finally perceiving the truth, and believed. The same thing is true of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. They recognized the excitement they felt as Jesus took them through the Hebrew Scriptures, even when they hadn't yet perceived who was leading this heavenly Bible study. But then, when they knew it was Jesus, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. The thrill of learning Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, and the need to share that news with other disciples propelled them along. The sense of excitement they felt over this good news made the long journey seem short. And that brings us back to today. How excited are you over the reality that Jesus died and then rose from the dead? Are you excited enough to run and tell others the good news? Do you realize that most Christians today worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day Jesus came out of the grave? Go back and read John 20 and Luke 24. Try to recapture the sense of wonder and excitement and awe that the disciples felt on that very first Resurrection Sunday. This is a day to rejoice 
because Jesus kicked out the back of the grave to demonstrate that even death itself was no match for his power. Or, as the old hymn expresses it so well, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Charlie, I've got goosebumps. That's just an awesome truth. Thank you, thank you for that marvelous, marvelous storytelling. Well, you're welcome. You know, uh, we'd love to get an email from you, uh, knowing how the program connects with you, impacts you. And if you want to write us, here's how to do it. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. That's a mouthful. Let me slow it down. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. Well, I'm John Geiger for our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We sure hope that you'll spend time pondering these very truths that Charlie has shared with us. Hallelujah, Christ arose. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.